0: Eli McLaren teaches Canadian literature and the history of the book in the Department of English at McGill University. He's the author of Dominion and Agency, Copyright and the Structuring of the Canadian Book Trade, 1867-1918, to University of Toronto Press, 2011, and has forthcoming articles on Fair Dealing, Al Purdy, John Lovell, and Sarah Jeanette Duncan. From 2012 to 2017, he was the editor of the Papers of the Bibliographical Society of Canada. And in 2015, he co-organized the annual conference for the Society for the History of Authorship, Reading, and Publishing, SHARP, in Montreal. And today we're going to talk about the Ryerson Press's series of chapbooks. That you've been doing some studies mm-hmm. on welcome to the bibliophile thank you very much so what's the name of that paper that
1: you wrote the one published in canadian poetry yeah significant little offerings at the origin of the ryerson poetry chapbooks 1925 and
0: 1926 yeah that's right yeah. looking at the first yeah. year first two years of the series so to start off with the, the kind of literary publishing environment at that time was stifling in Canada.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was, uh, well, I argue it was essentially a system of publisher agents. Um, Canadian booksellers had learned how to work with British and American publishers and they had learned how to produce textbooks for Canada. So much of the publishing focused there on importing and wholesaling Books mostly from the states, and distributing them to, to the Canadian market and, and publishing textbooks. So the question is, can that firm, which is a sort of publisher, can that firm produce original literature? can it, can it become uh, a specialist literary publisher or not? And what fascinates me about Lauren Pierce is that Lauren uh, Pierce was the yeah, book the, editor at the book editor at the Ryerson Press. Um, which was, of course, the trade name of the Methodist book and publishing house, uh, which went back into the 19th century, back to the 1830s. Lauren Pierce wanted to be a Canadian publisher. Not an agent? No, not just an agent. I mean, Ryerson Ryerson did that. They made a lot of money that way, helped them build their building uh, down on King Street. In Toronto,
0: And just to clarify, being an agent meant basically you just resold American and British publications into the Canadian market? Yes. Did you put your imprint on it?
1: Sometimes, yeah. yeah. You okay. could just import the book, you could publish an issue of the book, but what you weren't doing was publishing original editions, you know, yeah. in, in the strict sense of working with an author to create the first edition of a book, setting the type. And, and designing it and doing all that. You weren't taking and, any risks. Right. Yeah, exactly. So risk is kind of the key concept, I think. And I think it it remains the key idea in, uh, in, in what a publisher is. And, uh, yeah, I guess what interests me is that, you know, there was nationalism. There was a huge desire for um, a national literature many times over going back and back and back through Canadian history. So that wasn't the problem. And I don't think the problem was that what uh, was a lack of a critical mass of readers. People have argued that. But we had cities in Canada, you know, large enough to support a book trade from um, the late 18th century on. So I don't think that was the problem. You know, despite despite the French-English divide and all that, I don't think that was the problem. I really think the the problem was structural and legal, that copyright laws got in the way. So and, to explain that, then. Yeah, sure. Okay, well, it's kind of complicated, but I mean... The simplest factor is that um, the, United States had a, the United States had a very protectionist system. You had to print your book in the United States to get copyright in the United States. And the Americans did this deliberately and consciously in order to protect and encourage their industry. Kind of um, like Donald Trump and Steele. I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it, that was great for Americans, but bad for Canada, or bad for Canadian publishers, at least. So Pierce came
0: along and but then just to, mm-hmm. to finish that yeah. the British had what what role did they because they squeezed from the other side They did yes,
1: they uh, were pushing basically international copyright. they were pushing first imperial copyright and then after the signing of the Berne Convention in 1886, uh, they were pushing international copyright for their own well, f- and, they were pushing the high principle of copyright, which is that, you know, to basically an author publishing a book anywhere should have worldwide rights to control its publication.
0: But you know. they, want, they controlled copyright in Canada, though.
1: They did. They did. Yeah. And they made sure that Canada towed the line. They made sure that Canada respected, first of all, imperial and then international European Berne Convention copyright. So what does that mean? Um, well, it meant that someone setting up as a publisher in Toronto couldn't reprint Dickens. Whereas if you went 100 miles south, you know, uh, into New York State, then you could reprint Dickens. So you could, Amer- American <laughs> firms could print Dickens for 5, 10 cents you know, retail price, and Canadian firms couldn't.
0: So it's a great money maker that they were losing out on.
1: It was, it was. And I think we need to understand publishing as um, a kind of, basket of activities. You might have a successful textbook line, you might have a successful reprint series, and then you might do some original publishing. And original publishing sort of needs that diversity in order to be stable because, you know, every book is a risk. Uh, mm-hmm. it, might, it might take off, it might fail. So did they so. not take any risks
0: on Canadian authors then?
1: Um, Canadian firms? Yeah. Yeah, I think generally they tried to avoid investing their own money on new Canadian authors. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and then that then shows how that's bad for literature because authors do need support to be nurtured and developed, you know. And so the, um, the good ones or the ambitious ones went to the States. Yeah, that's right. I think of someone like Charles G.D. Roberts, who was an ardent nationalist. He did his best to be a writer in Canada. He's a confederation poet. He was a right? confederation poet, yeah. And eventually he... Threw in the towel and went to New York to write animal stories and, and, and made money doing that. So he lived in the States mm-hmm. right, and
0: made money there, but mm-hmm. then he came back
1: to Canada, right? He went to Europe for a while, uh, served in the First World War, came back to Canada in 1925, is that right? 1924. And that was the occasion Lauren Pierce seized to launch
0: his rare and Poetry chapbooks. Um, he said, "Give me some of your stuff, and we'll put it into this." That's the first one. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, even though it wasn't original,
1: or right. Was it? No, it wasn't. It was essentially reprinting uh, what Robert's poetry they could get their hands on, um,
0: without incurring legal problems. problems. Yeah,
1: and there are threatening letters from the Boston publisher L. C. Page to Lorne Pierce in the Queens archive at Queens University. <laughs>
0: Was he the one that was such an asshole to Lucy Maud Montgomery? Yeah,
1: yeah. Okay. Precisely, yeah. She dragged him through the courts over, uh, I forget the details of which book exactly, but... Yeah, he was a, a, f- a fiend for a number of Canadian authors, you know, because he was just so... He was so um, strict, I guess, with his contracts and his... He said, he said,
0: basically, you can't publish with a Canadian because I've got the rights to Canada...
1: Yeah, yeah, he did. And I think that that's maybe, returning to the copyright question, that's sort of the key idea, that the Americans saw Canada as part of a North American market that they controlled. And Britain saw Canada as a colony that they controlled. Mm-hmm. So there were these overlapping... Kind of the bet noire of being Canadian. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Stuck in the triangle. Okay. Um, but about Pier- about Pierce launching his series, I think it's important to back up and see what he was doing just before he launched the Ryerson Poetry Chapbooks, and what he was doing just before was a series called Makers of Canadian Literature. Essentially, this was an initiative to try to give Canada a literature. What well, does that mean, give
0: Canada a literature? Yeah. If he's just—is he including things that they've written? In these, is it like an anthology, or is it just a biography? But, uh, it was a uh, it was a
1: mixed genre of um, biography a biographical sketch, anthology, and I think an appreciation, critical appreciation by someone. There are a few different components of these books. Mm-hmm. Um, and what matters is that Lauren Pierce did it on a big scale. He commissioned the most important people he could find to write on Canada's most important writers. For example, he commissioned Duncan Campbell Scott to write a book on Archibald and, Uh He paid them very big advances for the time, hundreds of dollars, and uh, this all before a single copy of the book sold. Right. So he invested heavily in this series, and it collapsed under its own weight, and... Um, yeah, he was in conflict with what the, his boss, whoever was. was, Samuel Follis, the book steward. Okay. Uh, yeah. So he regrouped after this defeat, and thought, how can I publish Canadian literature?
0: And on, the, the, cheap. Books. on yeah. the
1: cheap on the cheap yeah. right and the chapbooks is what was the answer that he that he hit upon i mean it's not the only thing he published he did also publish uh full length books uh he published Frederick Philip Grove Settlers of the Marsh and later on he published books by Earl Burney BK Page uh, so the chapbooks weren't the only thing going but they were um, an interesting example of well what I think we're looking at essentially is um, pioneering of the small press inside an old publisher agent. You know, he found a way to publish literature cheaply and um, roped in the authors for covering the risk. The authors had to, uh, had to provide a guarantee that they would um, compensate Ryerson in the case of loss.
0: So did they have, they, sometimes um, they paid up front, sometimes they guaranteed that if it, didn't sell they would cover the cost yeah that's right
1: yeah I I think in in this case mostly the latter most of the guarantees Mm -hmm. and I don't really know how much money changed hands it might have been a protective thing uh, for Lauren Pierce's sake reporting to a supervisor but there are letters from from authors saying you know I guarantee to cover uh, in the amount of maximum $100 if my book doesn't sell how much was a hundred dollars in today's money? Oh, that's a good question. It's hard to estimate exactly. I mean, at least ten times that.
0: So you know, it was uh, sizable. Okay. I read. I, I'm not sure if it was in your piece or somewhere else that he didn't just go after the best author he could find. He he wanted to give anyone a shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But he would he would be the determining uh, the factor. I mean, his editorial yeah. eye would be what counted, right? Right yeah that's that's an important point um he
1: was interested in representing the nation you know he was interested in voices from all across the country in the chapbook series we have poets from the west coast from vancouver island from bc alberta across the prairies ontario quebec the maritimes so he was interested in that representative impulse in canadian literature try to really gather the voices of the country mm-hmm. uh, he himself had been what's the correct term a Probationer on the prairies, not a missionary exactly, but kind of a priest,
0: uh, teacher, is not
1: he? Minister in training, well, a minister. I mean, he was he was ordained a Methodist minister. So yeah, he, he taught. He the anecdote I, I recall from Sandra Campbell's biography is that he, you know, had to help immigrants bury their dead, you know, on the frozen prairie. It was a pretty mm-hmm. agonizing process. So <laughs> he, he his heart went out to Canadians across the country, and he wanted to help them find their voice i guess so that was that was one important aspect of the series on the other hand the other important aspect is that charles gd roberts quickly asserted his aesthetic taste
0: well again according to your article he did more than that he got his niece in there he got his uh-huh. brother he got his uh-huh. lover girlfriend right. i mean yeah when i read that i thought pierce is putting up with this
1: Uh yeah well pierce was a polite man i mean he (laughs) he wrote in his diary that he was disappointed and appalled by roberts's morals but at the same time but what about him accepting this he didn't have to accept this no it's true i guess he believed that charles gd roberts and this is true had done something very important for canadian poetry in the 1880s you know he was sort of the leader mentor of the first real school of English-Canadian poets, uh, Confederation poets. Mm-hmm. And so this is payback? or Yeah, I think it's acknowledgement, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Acknowledgement. And I suppose we would react differently today, but at the time, you know, the unsavory details of Robert's life were swept under the carpet and his good work for literature was, uh, was celebrated. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what was happening. Mm-hmm. Also, he was a powerful personality. Well, so was Pierce, though, no? So was Pierce, yeah, so was Pierce. I mean, he's still very much Roberts' junior in 1925. Oh, okay, okay. So I think he probably deferred to him. Right. Uh, but, yeah, so, I mean, the chapbooks as a series did come to um, stand for a certain kind of middle brow or even backward-looking romantic Victorian poetry as opposed to a modernist poetry.
0: Yeah, before we get yeah. to that, I just wanna—it was a passage in—I just want to read this out quickly because it—it mm-hmm. it talks to what you were saying about about Pierce uh, sort of wanting to nation build with this, yeah, and give a voice to the regional uh-huh. parts of the country, right? Okay, so here we are, uh, and this is uh, Pierce writing in uh, after the fact, and he wrote a little pamphlet called "On Publishers and Publishing." published by the Ryerson Press in 1951. And here he says, Best of all, he's talking about publishers, they have shown great pride in their lands, their own lands, whether proud kingdom or humble city-state, and they have urged artists and writers unceasingly to paint and sing and write of what they saw, of the life crowding about them. They have implored these creative spirits to give some true hint of the wealth hidden in their native soil, to explain their own people to themselves and be their spokesman to the world. Every nation that has ever reached maturity has had these master builders working for it, and not infrequently, these have been the real first ministers of the realm. Mm-hmm. you talking about himself. Yes.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think what's fascinating about Lauren Pierce is what a stalwart idealist he was, you know. And I've grown increasingly to respect to respect that because he just wouldn't give up. You know, he wouldn't give up. He he, he stayed in his uh, editorial saddle for f- almost forty years, you know, and he, and he was devoted to those ideals. So on the one hand, I I really respect uh, the sentiment he's expressing there. On the other hand, we also need more scholarly critical. Accounts of what was going on, you know, because uh, it's more complicated than just making heroes, you know.
0: Going on with who? Uh,
1: just happening in Canadian publishing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, there were lots of... So he, he was idealistic. He was idealistic, idealistic, yes. But others may not have been. Well, he might not have been able to achieve as much as he hoped, always. Right. Well, that's, um, the,
0: that's the point you make about these uh, chapbooks, is mm-hmm. that they're, critically, they're just sort of, they've like disappeared, no one's paying uh-huh. much attention to them.
1: Yeah, that is often the case. You know, a number of chapbooks I've purchased or found in libraries uh, aren't aren't even opened.
0: I've got uh, a couple, uh, I think I mentioned to you when I saw you first. Yes. And I think I got them at McLeod's bookstore mm-hmm. in Vancouver. Okay. In the basement. Uh-huh. That's a good spot to head to, at least, I think the last time I was there, I think there were quite a few of them. Okay. But they time. look, they're like, they're pristine. Yes. Right. It's its like they were just printed last week. Yeah. Yeah, they're not particularly rare books, most yeah. of them. Yeah. yeah. There's a few exceptions. Well, there's only 250 uh-huh. of each, though. That's pretty rare. Right. Yes. And they get beat up, too, uh-huh. so... Yeah, yeah. But, I mean,
1: many libraries in the country have these chapbooks, uh, and you can find a lot of them
0: online. Were they made in hardcover?
1: No. Um, None of them? No, no. The, the, the physical format of the chapbooks is is interesting. They're, I think the term is saddle stitched, uh, but really it's just a staple. Yeah. You know, in, in the gutter. There's no proper title page. The front, the front and back covers are uh, uh, paper, a heavy paper no. uh, with a color. And they have a. Until a certain date, um, a woodcut designed by a group of seven member, J.E.H. MacDonald, and then touched up by his son, Thoreau MacDonald, on the front. So they all look the same in that that regard.
0: Yeah, that was Uh, very, it's a very kind of arts and crafts look to it, isn't it? Yeah. When you think of it, the arts and craft was 1890s. Right. This was the So it's not a modern look. No. At all. No. It's not avant garde. No, it's not. And in that sense, it corresponds with the poetics, which also wasn't modernist and uh exactly uh, you, you talk about uh, provincial flowers pine trees and a, a lyre, symbolizing right. the power of poetry to create a nation uh-huh yes yeah
1: yeah that's where that's where he was at now some of the books in the series have become rather important like uh, anne marriott's the wind our enemy has been taken up and anthologized and it's really part of the canon and it's read as a modernist poem
0: um, when was that published? That was nineteen thirty nine Yeah, I think uh, again that's the, the and that's, that's why I think where you were headed with this. Mm-hmm. It starts off with a sort of a late romantic mm-hmm. uh, bent, but uh, even though it may be after the fact mm-hmm. uh, Pierce gets on he gets on the the modernist bandwagon right mm-hmm. around the second world war.
1: Yeah, he does. Sandra Campbell explains this really well in her biography that he he has certain well. Brokers or intermediaries, he starts to work with, like E. K. Brown, professor at the University of Toronto, and Brown starts to say to him, "Look, this modernism stuff isn't so bad. You know, we can we can do some of this." <laughs> yeah, and because again, he,
0: you mentioned uh-huh. the influence of of Roberts. Yes, he he couldn't stand the modernists. Right, and he his manifesto here, which you quote, is. Uh-huh. Sincerity, simplicity, candor, music in phrase and cadence, beauty in thought and form, conscientious workmanship. And this, the modernism mistakes violence for strength, ugliness for originality. Yes, right. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, that was really Pierce's
1: line for, for a while. But, you know, we have to keep in mind that ultimately uh, a poet like Al Purdy publishes his first books, in the Ryerson Poetry chapbooks, So I really, what I'm, what I'm trying to do in my research is to link up the origin of the series and its, its being anchored in the Confederation Poets, on the one hand, with the contribution that it ultimately makes to modern contemporary Canadian literature in someone like Al Purdy at the end. And what fascinates me the most is that I think poetry remains this for a lot of us. It remains uh, a discourse of idealism and beauty, you know. Poetry shouldn't just be a difficult academic puzzle that you figure out in a university classroom. It should be uplifting. It should be...
0: It should appeal to the general public. It
1: should. That's right. And probably the best poets, you know, don't lose sight of that, right? It's not just for the ivory tower. It's not just to show off how smart you are. No, no, exactly. It's supposed to move us. And that's what interests me about this series.
0: Well, that's what Uh, Pierce was getting at, too, I suppose. I mean, that's late Romanticism, right? Uh
1: Uh-huh. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, Pierce was a great reader. He loved loved literature. He loved English literature. He loved Russian literature. Uh, And what he loved about it was, you know, sentiment, music, beauty, idealism. Uh, He did ultimately publish The Modernists, but, you know, there was a reluctance there because he... Was hesitant to, he was hesitant to allow realism for its own sake. You know, mm-hmm. he would allow realism for an idealistic purpose, but just realism. Well, the, again, that is to move to move the reader. Yeah, to move the reader, to to move the reader to be a better person than he or she
0: might otherwise be. You you quote uh, some, some. I'm not sure exactly where it comes from. A reader response somewhere, uh-huh. but you quote readers saying the readers wanted lucid. Mm -hmm. Uh, morally inspiring verse that could be memorized, Uh expressions of pleasurable or or Mm -hmm. pleasure-dignified sentiment for rare moments of quiet textual mirrors in which they could trace their own best potential selves, Uh fresh inspiration that transports reader from the tiresome pressures of life. Right, that starts to
1: sound a bit like Archibald <laughs> Lantman, doesn't it? So yeah, you can see me absorbing it. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, poetry used to be published in the newspaper. Simple verses about memory, about love, about flowers. And I'm really interested in that, that function of it, you know, in the average life.
0: yeah, in Not just the professor's life, but the average person needed poetry too. To lighten the load.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Or or to put into words feelings of intense pain, mm-hmm. suffering, or love. That's
1: right. And, and, and death, too. You know, I think we mm-hmm. forget easily how present death was. To make sense of it all. That's right. Yeah, to be able to cope yeah. with, you know, losing a sibling to polio or losing a
0: parent to influenza. Rarer for us now. You um, talk about the poems, need a bit of clarification on this one here. The poems, quote, demonstrate the marginality, the provisionality, and inversely, the resolve of those who nevertheless attempt it, reveal conditions in which Canadian literature was striving to take shape. What does that mean? Uh, okay, right. Well,
1: most of the poems in this series are, uh, are unknown. Um, they've been totally forgotten and haven't been recuperated and curated by criticism.
0: Incidentally, yeah. I thought that first Roberts yes. poem was very good. Yeah. I yeah. was, I was yes. very surprised. I That's thought right. that was going to get uh-huh. treacly, sentimental, yeah. right.
1: religious. Oh, no. Roberts is a good poet. Roberts really was a good poet and uh, deserves his place in our anthologies.
0: Absolutely. But you're saying most of it was
1: ignored. Well, a lot of it was ignored. But I, I think that what, what's interesting for me is that when you begin to understand the lives uh, of the poets, you begin to appreciate their poetry. You know, the, the poetry starts. He's to, supposed to separate those two, though. Well, it starts to transform. The more you know, you see that someone raised eight children on a farm, and lost her husband, and kept writing poetry. You know, yeah, but if the
0: poetry sucks, then who cares? No,
1: no. I, I, I start to, I start to have respect f- for it. You know, I start to um, be impressed that that the person could produce, and it, I guess ultimately this becomes kind of social history or cultural studies. You know, we're not just talking about the, the very, text. the very best text ever ever put together. Mm-hmm. Um, But Canadian literature will always be that. You know, Canadian literature will always be interested in historical and political conditions of creation. Because that's partly, you know, the the very term, Canadian literature, has this political adjective in it. It's more than just the text. It is, it really uh, is. It's the environment. Yeah, uh, yeah, Yeah. that's right. Um, Culture. And I'm just attested to my own experience. I would open up one of these chapbooks and think, oh, what's this? This is going to be (laughs) not very worthwhile. I never heard of this guy. But, but often the a lot, a lot of thought went into writing these texts and there's more there than you first see. Mm-hmm. I, I do think we need to... The life informs the work then. It does, it does, yeah. And we also need to overcome our own reluctance and inertia with regard to poetry. Because when someone gives you a book of poetry, your first reaction is, ah, this is going to be a lot of work. Yeah, that's you right. Know? Yeah. Yes uh i don't want to do this right i'm gonna go watch tv instead yeah um, or surf the net or right yes. social media or whatever uh-huh. yeah yeah but um when you get over that hump you know there's often something there of, of interest yeah and i, I think actually what, what what happened in the 20th century is that certain poets made sure that they were at the center of criticism and anthologization and others were neglected and we should, you know, at this point,
0: that's what that's what a lot of criticism is about, mm-hmm. though, is shining a light on yeah. stuff that's being ignored.
1: Right. True. It is. It is. But it also isn't perfectly disinterested.
0: You know, so you're not perfectly disinterested. I'm right? not perfectly disinterested. No. What, what's, I, what's your I agenda
1: am, here? Well, I'm trying to add back in. What the, 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 the standard narrative is that Canadian poetry really moves to Montreal in the 20th century. And that's great. A.J.M. Smith, F.R. Scott, P.K. Page, they're great poets. You know, absolutely. They're, mm. they're fantastic poets. Damn kind. But there are, yeah. But there are, there, there's a wider culture and reality of Canadian poetry in the 20th century. Mm. There are other voices. That's you know. sounding like
0: yeah. someone who lives out in Saskatchewan, you know. It's yeah. just too damn right. Montreal or Toronto-centric. Well, I grew up in Alberta, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. There we have it. Yeah. <laughs> Comes to light. Yes. <laughs> I'm speaking to uh, Eli McLaren, who's a professor, at, professor of English at McGill University in Montreal. Here's something else that you say: the aim of the project, the Chapbooks project, is to deepen and enrich existing concept of the evolution of Canadian literary publishing mm-hmm. and of the diversity of Canadian literary history. So we've touched on this. The mm-hmm. latter. What about the former? There. Mm-hmm. Well. I think that there's more than meets the eye to publishing.
1: Publishing happens in a variety of different ways. We tend naively to think of publishing as kind of a, a hitting, a hitting of the big time. The editors are out there looking for talent, and true talent floats to the top, and good books are published, and authors become famous. You know, but I think when you get into it, it's so much more complicated than that. Um, you have well you have small you know, basement presses essentially operating uh, with a single individual's um, dedication you have medium sized presses getting government grants that would disappear if the government grant disappeared yeah and without was, them these
0: these poets uh, writers wouldn't get any kind of notoriety yeah. uh, it's interesting i was uh, i was in reading not that long mm. ago at mm-hmm. the uh, publishing and printing archive there. Okay. Talking to the archivist uh, mm. guy Baxter mm. and he said something quite similar. He said, you know, what's interesting is, is the stuff that didn't happen or almost happened, could have happened, but uh-huh. didn't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I'm inspired by the same idea. What was the potential for literary creativity in Canada? I think it was huge. And then what was the uh, reality um, what actually got through the the, the funnel of but what we talked about originally,
0: uh-huh. uh, England and, and the United States. Yeah, but was there anything else after that? You know, I mean, this was these chapbooks mm-hmm. have resulted. These poor little, tiny little things. Yes, this is the this is the result uh-huh. of. Uh, this, it's at least it's something though. Right. Yeah, it's something. I
1: think you know we should keep in mind too that the way business works is. There's, there's leaders and followers, you know, so the Americans get ahead in publishing and they don't give up that lead. You know, they still have bigger markets, um, bigger scales of production, bigger advances to authors.
0: Yeah, they just have to leave the presses running for an extra 10 minutes and they've covered the Canadian
1: market. Precisely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that historical inequality runs through time in, in, in an interesting way. But you know we need the small publishing circles to catch that talent. You know, Alice Munro began in the small press in Canada. She published stories. She began in, in the
0: New Yorker is where she began.
1: Well, no, I mean that was that was 1978, but she was writing stories from 1950. You know, I mean, and so, who was publishing her? Well, her first stories are in a university magazine, and then she got married, had Which children. Which one? Western, I forget oh, okay. what it was called. Okay. And it's in Robert Thacker's biography. But then she was published by the Tamarack Review and editor Robert Weaver. Big hero. Yeah, definitely. So they didn't want to be a small press, but they essentially were a small press. And through that small publishing circle, eventually, you know, she managed to hang in the authorship game until she got her big break with the New Yorker. There you go.
0: See, I'm I'm typical of... not not understanding the importance of this. But I I just sort of bridled mm-hmm. a bit when you said that mm-hmm. these chapbooks are what facilitated mm-hmm. the small press in Canada.
1: Mm-hmm. How, How do did they that? do that? Yeah. Um, well, here's an example. David, David McKnight has a bibliographical history of the small press in Canada, and he goes back to the Writers and Poetry chapbooks, saying this is a, a, an early version of what then many other later publishers would do. Um, and I think that a number of people got an experience of the small press through these chapbooks and then went off to found their own small presses. Because like,
0: they saw how cheaply they could yeah, do they it? Yeah, they saw how, yeah. But I mean, chapbooks have been around since Henry VIII.
1: Oh, well, this is a really interesting thing. There's two senses of the word chapbook. There is Jack and the Beanstalk, The Ballad of the Folk, a cheap book printed and hawked across the English countryside by a, by a peddler, by a chapman. There's that sort of folk culture of poetry, but there we're not talking about new poetry. You know, we're talking about um, the oral fables, and yeah, fables, things passed on through the oral sure, tradition. Right. And it's not until the 1890s that that starts to change towards the second definition of chapbook, which is a, correct, a collection of original poetry by a novice poet.
0: And this is, again, through Stone and Kimball and the like? Yeah, it the, was. The, it's called The Chap. I've That's got some right. of them. I, they're yeah. very collectible. They're okay. beautiful little things. Right.
1: Yeah, I think that little magazine was really influential in changing what, what, the, what the word chapbook meant. It kept the sense of collector's item. Mm-hmm. You know, because the old 18th century ballads were collector's items. And the new books by an unknown poet, they're collector's items too. But to come back to your first question, someone like Fred Cogswell, who founded Fiddlehead Books... He, he published in the Ryerson Poetry Chapbook series.
0: <laughs> did he? Yeah. Actually, yeah. so did J.E.H. MacDonald. He wrote some ah. poems that got in. Right, yeah. Funny. And so, yeah. you know, he, he really is accepting all sorts of people, right? Yes, yeah.
1: A.G. Yeah. Bailey also was involved with the Fiddlehead. <laughs> so I think it was kind of a the trunk of a tree then with lots of branches into the small press in different ways.
0: So, so. you're saying that, the, that these poets saw this format. Mm-hmm. And said to themselves, I can do that. Yeah. So why not? Right. It's funny it would take that. You'd think that that Uh idea would come to them, Uh you know, before that. Yeah.
1: Right. Well, that may well be, you know. Um, All I'm saying here is that the chapbooks were an important contributing model. You know, I'm not saying that
0: that they were the sole Mm -hmm. source. Okay. Um, You're suggesting then that the the kind of cheapness explains their longevity, you think? Because this is the longest series in the history of Canadian literature, yeah. right? Yeah. There's 200 of them. Yeah, there's
1: 200. Between 25 yeah. and... and 1960, 60. there's one in 1962 with kind of an outlier, um, <laughs> seeing if it would still work after Pierce retired. But yeah, I think that Lauren Pierce found a formula that worked, which was if they're cheap, then you can do them. And if they're going to cost money, then there's going to be all sorts of obstacles thrown up in your way. So yeah, and in that in that sense, that also points the way many other later subsequent Canadian literary ventures, you know, don't, don't spend much money and you can, you can print whatever you want. I think that was Dennis Lee's idea when he founded House of Anansi Press. Uh, so yeah, I think that formula, that model really starts to work. Also I think that the Ryerson poetry chapbooks are important because the Canadian small press today is heavily subsidized and I think what happened is that pioneering models such as Pierce's showed Canada, you know, we can do this. So that the, the formula was there, and then the state invested in it, rather than.
0: But wasn't it? it wasn't creating. that the private sector was thrilled with all the money they could make with this, because there wasn't much money to be no,
1: made. No, there wasn't. There wasn't. But the the way to print these little books was was evident, and it could be invested in, you know, uh, when when finally the taps
0: were turned on. The government uh, taps. Yeah, the government taps with the Canada Council in fifty one. <laughs> Or was it a bit later? I, oh no, right. I'm thinking of the Massey report. Massey Commission Commission that yeah. was 51. Right, precisely. So Pierce failed to build a national literature through this initiative, or was is it is it there and just not appreciated? Oh, okay, great question.
1: Let's see. I'm I'm conflicted here. In, in in one way I think he failed, but he created something that others could then succeed in, you know, like uh, if we look at his support of Canadian authors after he retires, Ryerson publishes Alice Monroe, *Dance of the Happy Shades*. Yeah. You know. PG so, winner. Yeah. Right. So there's there, there's a pattern there that eventually bears big fruit. On the other hand, I do think we should go back to the Ryerson authors and read them, like Earl Burney's *David*, fantastic poem, or as I say, Al Purdy's early poetry, which I think is great. PK Page's first book.
0: It was it was one of the chapbooks. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't
1: a chapbook. No. no, it was a Ryerson book. book? Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, it, it was an initiative. It was, it was. And, I, and literature is always a subjective matter of success and failure. You know, it depends on your reading of the book if you think this is, is worthwhile or not. But I, I think it is. I think it's worthwhile. So I'm doing the academic hedging there. I want both both and
0: <laughs> that question. Okay. So how should this uh, neglected chapbook be incorporated in the Canadian liter- literary history? Well,
1: that's what I'm... Trying to do right now. I'm trying to tell the story of the publisher, the editor, and the poets. Uh, I can only do a few because there there are too many. And you I tried, focused on a couple, right? Yeah, I focused on a couple in that article. I'm I'm I got a chapter on uh, Eugenie Perry, who's an unknown poet, but I think a pretty pretty good poet. At the end, uh, Nathaniel Benson also was a lifelong poet, even though he had to do other things, teaching, advertising and uh where's he from he was from toronto oh sorry i'm losing what was the question again uh, oh yeah well, i'm trying to read the to... poetry i'm trying to i'm trying to read the poetry too to say look this poetry is is worth looking at twice you know it's that... not what
0: i i thought it was it's not all sappy sentimental no crap no it's not i no. mean some of it is i'm sure yeah some of it is yeah but others is do you want to yeah. edit uh, why don't you just take them all and put them into a volume
1: yeah yeah, i've thought about that i maybe we'll do that too or make a selection you know people mm-hmm. like selections
0: yeah. Um,
1: yeah but the first work is for me the first work is who were these authors how did they publish what little
0: they did and, so that's uh, your your more sort of a less history. of a text more of a the cultural
1: environment yeah well book book history book history is the rubric that i kind of file myself under okay yeah so in
0: other words kind
1: of reader response and mm-hmm. um, money that changed hands. What kind of authorship do people practice and the lives uh, of the authors? Yeah, that's right. Dealings yeah. with their editors
0: interaction uh, between that and the text.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I think that was another question you wanted to answer was do these poets define poetry, right? Yes. Yeah. That's uh, important to think about. I
1: think it's important to get beyond just the single linear spectrum of good and bad poetry. It's important to understand that poetry was different things to different people. Mm-hmm. Some people wanted to enjoy it aloud with their family. Other people wanted to, it to tackle really difficult philosophical problems that they could study alone in silence.
0: And we can see those different ideas of poetry in the poems themselves. Yeah, because you make the point that it's not just, they're not just all the same. There's quite a diversity in, yeah. uh, within those t- 200 Uh-huh
1: you know, There's a real books. variety yes right. yeah and i hope i can describe that properly in, in in my study we'll see where are you at with the study i have written i've written three chapters and i want to write at least two more and it'll be a book then Will yeah it, it'll be a it'll be a is model. it already
0: that's already like uh, is someone already I, committed to no it i don't have
1: a contract yet i mean i'll look to some of the good canadian academic presses and see mm. if i can convince them yeah i think mm. i think they'll be convinced <laughs>
0: After this, they sure will. Yes, right, yeah. <laughs> Just one final question. I read somewhere that Leonard Cohen was in there. Is that true or not? Uh, no, he didn't have a Ryerson Poetry chapbook. I, I, I couldn't see uh, him being that. I don't know where I read that, but I... It, uh-huh. it, Some other Montrealers were, though. Louis Dudek got into Dudek, the series. Okay, and, du- and, and, uh, and Cohen was in Dudek's... Circle. Circle, but also, didn't Dudek publish... Yeah, I think so. I don't. Was something from McGill, the McGill Reading Series, or something? Right. So there is that. Yeah. Yeah. I should look though. There was a there was a McGill a
1: McGill chapbook, um, a McGill Ryerson poetry chapbook near the end of the series that had a variety of authors. And actually, I haven't checked if Cohen's there. Maybe he is.
0: I that's uh, I don't know. I read it. So yeah. I don't remember about too or not. That would be useful to find out. Anything else you want to say about uh, your study and uh, what you want to achieve with it? No,
1: I think that's, that's a, pretty good, a pretty good cross-section of what I'm thinking about, and,
0: and I'm grateful for the chance to talk about it. Well, I'm grateful for the chance to do so as well. Thank you. Great, thank you. I've been talking to Eli McLaren, who teaches Canadian literature and the history of the book in the Department of English at McGill University in Montreal. Thanks again.